Hello everyone and welcome to the November 4th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The California Insurance Guarantee Association had a big victory at the Court of Appeal when the court ruled that there is no WCAB exclusive jurisdiction over AOE-COE in a disputed SEGA case. Here's what happened in the published case of SEGA versus the San Diego County Schools Risk Management Joint Powers Authority. The worker Colleen Nolies received workers' compensation from her employer, the Mountain Empire Unified School District. The district is a self-insured employer, and its claims are administered through the San Diego County Schools Risk Management Joint Powers Authority. The JPA purchased excess workers' compensation insurance. An administrative law judge ultimately approved a stipulation that Nolly suffered a specific injury in 2003. The distinction between a cumulative and a specific injury matters for determining which of the JPA's excess insurance policies was triggered. Kemper Insurance Company was the JPA's excess insurer during the stipulated specific injury date. They indemnified the JPA until they went insolvent. The JPA then approached SEGA to make up what Kemper had failed to pay. But SEGA is only obligated to pay covered claims, defined to exclude claims for which other insurance is available. On this basis, SEGA denied coverage, asserting Nolly suffered a cumulative injury, which meant that the JPA might recover from a different excess insurer other than Kemper. SEGA then sued the JPA and the district for declaratory relief, asserting that because Nolly suffered a cumulative injury, the JPA's claim was not a covered claim. The trial court granted summary judgment and entered its judgment in favor of the JPA, requiring SEGA to reimburse nearly $130,000 plus costs. SEGA appealed that decision, and the central issue to SEGA's appeal was a jurisdictional question. Does the Superior Court have jurisdiction to find that Nolly suffered a cumulative injury even if this conflicts with the stipulation before the WCAB? Or is injury characterization an an issue within the WCAB's exclusive jurisdiction? The trial court granted summary judgment because it believed the WCAB had exclusive jurisdiction to decide the nature of Nolly's injury. The Court of Appeal reversed and found that the Superior Court indeed had jurisdiction to rule on the causation issue in this published case. Although the issue appears to be one of first impression in California, federal courts have rejected WCAB exclusivity in similar cases involving excess workers' compensation insurance. The Court of Appeal agreed with these authorities and concluded based on the purpose of excess insurance, that the Superior Court has jurisdiction to characterize Nolly's injury in this action differently than what was reflected in the WCAB stipulation. 
Accordingly, it reversed the judgment and directed the trial court to enter a new order denying the defendant's motion for summary judgment. And now our crime report. A jury found Hawthorne Mann guilty of 14 federal felonies for intentionally driving his family off a wharf and into the water at the Port of Los Angeles. The scheme was designed to collect money on insurance policies he had taken out on their lives. 45-year-old Ali Almazayan was found guilty after a nine-day jury trial of four counts of mail fraud, four counts of wire fraud, one count of aggravated identity theft, and five counts of money laundering. Almazayan bought more than $7 million worth of life and accidental death, insur death insurance policies on himself and his family from eight different insurance companies. After purchasing the policies, he repeatedly called the insurance companies to verify that the policies were active and that they would pay benefits if his wife died in an accident. He also called at least two of the insurance companies to confirm they would not investigate claims made two years after the policies were purchased. These telephone calls were recorded and were played for the jury. On April 9, 2015, 12 days after the two-year contestability period on the last of insurance policies expired, Elmezian drove a car with his wife and two youngest children off a wharf at the port of Los Angeles. The site of the crash was a loading dock and work site for commercial fishermen. Almizian swam out of the open driver's side window of the car. His wife, who did not know how to swim, escaped the vehicle and survived when a nearby fisherman threw her a flotation device. Two of the couple's three sons, who were 8 and 13, who were both severely autistic, were strapped into the car and they both drowned. Amazian repeatedly lied to law enforcement officers, insurance companies, and in subsequent civil litigation he filed concerning the crash about the extent of the insurance he had purchased on his family and specifically about whether he had insured his disabled children's lives. The evidence also showed that he attempted to persuade witnesses to falsely tell law enforcement that he had given the insurance proceeds to charity. Almizian then collected more than $260,000 in insurance proceeds. He now faces a statutory maximum sentence of 212 years in federal prison. Johnson & Johnson received grand jury subpoenas from the U.S. Attorney's Office related to its opioid medication policies. J&J said the subpoenas were related to anti-diversion policies and procedures and the distributions of its opioid medications developed by its Janssen Pharmaceuticals Unit. The company said it believes the investigation relates to monitoring and reporting programs by manufacturers and distributors of opioids under the Controlled Substances Act. It claims the investigation also involves other companies that have manufactured opioid medications. And the company says the subpoenas are part of a broader industry-wide investigation. The company believes its anti-diversion policies and procedures complied with the law.
It has been reported that drug distributors McKesson Corporation, Amerisource Bergen Corporation, and Cardinal Health had offered to pay $18 billion in cash over 18 years, while J&J would pay $4 billion in cash, both to resolve pending opioid civil litigation. The drug industry faces roughly 2,600 lawsuits brought by state and local governments, hospitals, and other entities seeking to hold drug makers and distributors responsible for the toll of the opioid abuse epidemic. Investigators seized over 44 pounds of fentanyl in an Ohio drug bust, a quantity officials say was large enough to wipe out the state's entire population many times over. In addition to the fentanyl, investigators seized some 1,500 grams of methamphetamine, 500 grams of heroin, three firearms, and $30,000 in cash. Officers arrested three suspects, all faced charges including possession with intent to distribute 400 or more grams of fentanyl. The Ohio Attorney General said the quantity of fentanyl in this case amounts to chemical warfare and a weapon of mass destruction. Ohio is one of four states in the U.S. along with Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire that saw an increase of more than 500 fentanyl-related incidents from 2014 to 2015. Most recently, the state grappled with a surge in overdoses linked to fentanyl, resulting in six deaths over the span of 24 hours this past September. Dr. Roger A. Kassendorf, an osteopathic physician practicing in La Jolla, agreed to pay $125,000 to resolve allegations that he illegally prescribed opioids to his patients. The highly addictive and frequently abused opioids he prescribed included fentanyl, hydromorphone, oxymorphone, and oxycodone. The DEA and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General investigation of his practice arose from data analytics tools used by the government. Data analytics helped in identifying statistical outliers, such as which doctors prescribed the highest opioid dosages, and which doctors prescribed combinations of opioids and other drugs known to increase the risk of addiction, abuse, and overdose. Based on the investigation, the United States contends that Dr. Kassendorf wrote prescriptions that were not issued for a legitimate medical purpose in violation of the Controlled Substances Act and the False Claims Act. A federal grand jury in San Diego returned a superseding indictment that charges three U.S. Navy service members, including Dr. Michael Villarreal, with fraud, false claims, and conspiracy to defraud the United States. The charges arise from a scheme where the three defendants filed fraudulent claims to obtain unearned benefits from the Traumatic Service Members Group Life Insurance Program. This program is an insurance program that compensates service members who suffer serious and debilitating injuries while on active duty. 
The program is funded by fees paid directly by individual service members and the Department of Defense. Dr. Michael Villarroyal, a commander in the U.S. Navy, was the medical doctor for the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Expeditionary Support Unit 1. In that capacity, the doctor knowingly signed off on false and fraudulent program applications on behalf of multiple service members that were part of or connected to the EODESU-1 unit. To support their applications, each of the two other defendants submitted fabricated applications that included forged signatures and altered hospital records. The two fraudulently collected $150,000 and at least $100,000, respectively. Four other individuals were previously indicted in connection with this scheme. Three of those individuals have pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and as part of their plea admitted that the conspirators defrauded the program of nearly $2 million. And in medical news, researchers say the medical evidence is weak for whether medical cannabis treatments can relieve mental illnesses such as anxiety, depression, and psychosis. To arrive at this conclusion, they analyzed 83 published and unpublished studies covering around 3,000 people between 1980 and 2018. And according to this study, published in the Lancet Psychiatry Journal, doctors should prescribe cannabis with great caution. Their findings have important implications for countries such as the United States, Australia, Britain, and Canada, where medical cannabis is being made available for patients with certain illnesses. There's a notable absence of high-quality evidence to properly assess the effectiveness and safety of medicinal cannabinoids. And until evidence from randomized controlled trials is available, clinical guidelines cannot be drawn up around their use in mental health disorders. Despite a lack of clinical trial evidence, however, anecdotally, some military veterans and others who suffer post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and anxiety say they have found cannabis helpful in easing some of their symptoms. Cannabis is used for other conditions including nausea, epilepsy, and traumatic brain injury, but this study did not examine its impact on those conditions. And addiction and mental health expert at Britain's Bath University, who is not involved in the study, said the findings highlighted an urgent need for high-quality trials of medical cannabis to strengthen the evidence. Labor Code Section 3208.3 supposedly set a standard for evaluating psychiatric injuries in California workers' compensation claims. The Labor Code requires that the worker be diagnosed using the terminology and criteria of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 3rd edition revised. We are currently on the 5th edition. But researchers point out that no two people are exactly alike. Therefore, attempting to classify each unique individual's mental health issues into neat categories just does not work. 
That's the claim coming out of a new study published in the scientific journal Psychiatry Research that is sure to ruffle some feathers. More people are being diagnosed with mental illnesses than ever before. Multiple factors can be attributed to this rise. Many people blame the popularity of social media and increased screen time. But it's also worth considering that in today's day and age, more people may be willing to admit that they are having mental health issues in the first place. That's why a new study conducted at the University of Liverpool has raised eyebrows by concluding that psychiatric diagnoses are scientifically meaningless and worthless as tools to accurately identify and address mental distress at an individual level. Researchers performed a detailed analysis on five of the most important chapters of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. The DSM is considered the definitive guide for mental health professionals, and it provides descriptions for all mental health problems and their symptoms. The five chapters the researchers analyzed were bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, and trauma-related disorders. The researchers came to a number of troubling conclusions. First, the study's authors assert that there is a significant amount of overlap in symptoms between disorder diagnoses, despite the fact that each diagnosis utilizes different decision rules. Additionally, these diagnoses completely ignore the role of trauma or other unique adverse events in a person may encounter in their lifetime. Perhaps most concerning of all, researchers say that these diagnoses tell us little to nothing about the individual patient and what type of treatments they will need. The authors ultimately conclude that this diagnostic labeling approach is a disingenuous categorical system. They say that although diagnostic labels create the illusion of an explanation, they are scientifically meaningless and can create stigma and prejudice. And in regulatory news, some of the country's largest ride-sharing companies just proposed a California law that would let them continue to treat drivers as independent contractors while also guaranteeing them a minimum wage and money for health insurance. The state legislature just enacted legislation this year, AB5, requiring ride-sharing companies to treat these drivers as employees. But the law these companies are now proposing would exempt ride-sharing companies, and the proposal must be approved by voters, not the state legislature. If passed, it would supersede the legislature's action and any similar ordinances passed by local governments. It also prevents lawmakers from passing another law to block it. The proposal will only get on the ballot in November 2020 if supporters can gather roughly 660,000 signatures from registered voters. Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash have already pledged $90 million to support the effort, making it one of the most expensive ballot measures ever. The Protect App-Based Drivers and Services Coalition is administering the effort, and this coalition is willing to negotiate with lawmakers. 
If the legislature passes a similar law by June 25, they would withdraw the ballot measure, but that appears very unlikely. The new proposed ballot initiative would require drivers to receive at least 120% of the state or local minimum wage, whichever is higher. It would let drivers keep all tips and it requires companies to pay drivers 30 cents a mile for expenses. And drivers who work at least 15 hours a week would get money for health insurance. They could work for multiple companies and get multiple stipends. The proposal is already dividing drivers on both sides of the issue. California's workers' compensation reforms enacted in 2003 and 2004 introduced a new process for approving medical services for injured workers. This included the adoption of mandatory utilization review using evidence-based medicine guidelines. Nearly a decade later, reforms in SB 863 mandated the use of independent medical review to resolve disputes over medical necessity. The California Workers' Compensation Institute's latest study of California's medical benefit delivery process expands on its earlier analyses. The Institute sought to determine the proportion of requested and delivered care that is approved versus denied after UR and IMR by service category. Results show that 94.1% of services performed or requested during the study period were either approved or approved with modifications, and only 5.9% were denied, though outcomes varied by service category. Evaluation and management services represented 29.1% of the medical services in the data set and had an approval rate of 99.7%. Surgery services were approved with or without modifications 94.9% of the time, while 89.4% of physical medicine services such as physical therapy, chiropractic manipulation, and acupuncture were approved with or without modifications. For the first time, the authors were able to estimate the proportion of UR denials and modifications that underwent IMR, and they found that an estimated 29% of UR modification and denial decisions were appealed and reviewed by an IMR physician. However, an examination of the top law firms identified in the UR data reveals that the IMR referral rates by applicant attorneys varied greatly. Some attorneys submitted nearly all of their clients' treatment modifications and denials to IMR, while others sent none. The last section of the study continues the Institute's monitoring of IMR volumes and results. After a 7% increase in volume from 2017 to 2018, IMR volume for the first half of 2019 appears to be dropping back toward 2017 levels. In addition, a small number of physicians continue to drive a disproportionate share of IMR volume, with the top 1% associated with 44% of the IMR decisions. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports. 
using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.